we are in a race. The race is against time. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter. Welcome to Sound Conversations. Welcome to Sound Conversations. I'm here with Rick Fair, two-time PGA Tour winner at the wonderful, sunny uh, Rick Fair Golf Academy here at Willows Run out in Redmond. Welcome, Rick. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, great to be on with you. Well, thank you uh, for making the time. I kind of figured since it's master's time, what a better way to kind of break in the golf season and uh, do another podcast here uh, with somebody who's actually been there. So... If you could, just give me your best master story. What's it like to, how many times you play there? Who'd you play with? Give me, give me some exciting story from okay. the Masters. Okay, yeah, I was fortunate. I played six different years, uh, twice uh, as an amateur. And interesting enough, the ways that I qualified or the reasons I got the invitation, uh, they don't honor that anymore. Basically, uh, the four semifinalists way back when, when I was an amateur, uh, the four semifinalists at the U.S. Amateur all got an invitation to play at the Masters. And then also all members of the U.S. Walker Cup team, which is the amateur Ryder Cup team, so so to speak. Um, those are the two ways I got in, and that was when I was in college. And uh, So 1983, went back there, missed the cut by one, uh, the first go. And then in 1984, I ended up finishing low amateur, finished tied yes. for tied for 25th. Kind of choked on Sunday, 75 on Sunday, but I, I was like tied for 12th going into the final round as a 21 year old. Wow! Just so happens that's my best finish out of the six. But uh, anyway, great experience. Um, probably the, the the story that stands out uh, the most was my first hole the first year as an amateur. So. Um, got to the first tee and I'd been there for a few days practicing and uh, staying up in the crow's nest, which is the, the there's a little dorm room up in the upstairs of uh, the Augusta National Clubhouse and they let the amateurs stay there back then. It was five bucks a night. And uh, so I stayed there with a few other guys that were playing. And anyway, all this, the nerves were kind of jacking up uh, when it came time when they announced a now on the tee, Rick Fair, you know, first tee there, and I, my hand was shaking. I was worried about being able to tee the thing up and made a swing. It was a blur, but I just crushed it. Uh, unfortunately, it was down a little bit left, and it went through the fairway out into the ninth fairway and uh, got up there, and no problem. Nine iron up over the trees, hit it up there right on the fringe, pins back left. That was about 15, 18 feet from the hole. Beautiful start, you know, get the nerve, first whole nerves out of the way, walking back up there, and I hear all the commotion, all the patrons, the spectators were, you know, giggling, laughing, all this noise, which is a little unusual there. Um, and sure enough, I look up, and there's this big old black lab, this dog just traipsing through the bunker, just making a big old mess, just scattering stuff. And so it kind of, kind of, everybody kind of relaxed nice. at that point until when I saw him jump out of the bunker and freeze and his eyes were on my golf ball and sure enough, he just took off and grabbed that thing in full stride and disappeared. <laughs> so, um, I had to call for an official ruling, had to drop it, 
um, since it was off the green and rolled a little bit further um, where I had to chip it. So now it's a little tougher than putting and managed to get up there close and get my par and move on. But so that kind of, I was on page two Welcome of the Augusta, Augusta Chronicle yeah. for that. But uh, anyway, it's an unbelievable place. It really is. And, and it's much more difficult than when I went there. It was kind of coming off the period of time when guys tore it up. Um, right. But they had transitioned from Bermuda grass to bent grass and the greens got a lot quicker and the course changed a lot. But it's it's certainly a tough course to play. So when you say the greens got quicker, mm-hmm. did they get? I mean, are they the fastest greens you play on all year? Are they that much? Is there a distinct difference you notice yeah, there? I, yeah, I, I can't. Unfortunately, I haven't been there in a little while, so I can't speak to how it is now. But um, the last year I played there, I would say there's other courses that get the greens actually rolling that fast. Um, not many, but when you combine that with the slope. And uh, when someone I know has an opportunity to go back to see the Masters, um, when they come back, I always ask them, "What's the what was the biggest surprise? You know, having seen it." And and every single one of my, uh, one of them has said the same thing: they couldn't believe the elevation change in the slopes. You know, TV just doesn't capture it, but the course is very, very uphill, downhill. Greens are. You know, you got Vita, Vita buses and elephants buried in them. And, you know, just it's really, really undulating. So when you combine that with the actual pace of just a flat uh, putt, it, it makes for a big challenge. So you talked about the nerves a little bit, kind mm-hmm. of at the first there, at the end, or when it when You know, everybody talks about having nerves when you're winning. What You won twice, obviously. Had some playoffs, had some close seconds, played in f- the final group, I'm assuming, quite a few times, or yeah. the second to last group. What's what's that like? What's what's different about that? I, I remember, you know, there's two types of golf, right? There's golf and there's tournament golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What explain a little bit more about the the nerves and what you did, what you felt, and what you did to try to overcome that. Yeah. So uh, often. When it's not, it's not often, even for the best players, where they feel like, hey, every aspect of their game is solid. So you're always kind of dealing with something that's less than optimal, you know. So there's, um, and so some of that stress can can come from feeling like you're going to be exposed, right? You've got a weakness, and that's going to be exposed. Or, um, you know, for me, I had that experience playing in the Masters before I turned professional. So when I got out on tour, I'd already kind of been in the ultimate pressure environment but when you get in the thick of things you know tournament golf and then you know the stress seems to be in two areas when you're getting near the lead or in the lead and then when you're on the cut line so you know for a lot of players when they're battling on friday and they're near the cut line you know they're trying to make a living or they whatever so there's a lot of stress at that point on the on the leaderboard as well but um in hindsight now and having talked to some top players, it's apparent to me that everyone feels the nerves. Okay. You know, you hear the stories of, you know, there's guys throwing up in the locker room or, or it's, you know, just, Hey, they, you know, they can't spit. They, you know, they're just wound up, but they learn how to perform even though, right. It's good to have breathing technique. It's good to have all those things. And, but, but ultimately you have to hit a quality shot or make a putt when you're choking your guts out. And so um, I think there's certain technique and style of play 
that lend itself to holding up under pressure. And I think there's some other things, mechanics and whatever else that don't. So, um, and then some guys and women are, you know, just tough as nails. Right. And others might not have that. And we see that in all walks of life. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you're, let's talk about your first win, right? How many times were you knocking on the door? I mean, that happened fairly early in your career. Yeah, it sure did. And was it kind of ignorance is bliss kind of a thing? Or, you know, I guess, talk, talk more about mm -hmm. that. You know, mm -hmm. obviously over four rounds, you right. didn't have your A game all four mm -hmm. days probably or right. some different things. Mm -hmm. Tell yeah. me just kind of about that, that first experience winning. Right. So it came in my first full year on tour. So uh, I had played um, a half a year and sort of got kind of weaseled my way into getting some status on the on tour. And then this was the second year. And it was late in the second year. And I had not played all that well. I was on the verge, you know, trying to keep my job, the top 125 on the money list thing. And I had played in this tournament that's called the BC Open. It's not British Columbia. It was back in New York State. <laughs> so if anybody remembers the BC comic strip, that's kind of, it's Broome County is what it, Broome County, New York. Anyhow, uh, I had played there the year before and we had had Seattle weather. And I mean, it was, and it's a dark and dreary place and it, and you know, it was cold and all that. And, you know, wonderful people there, but a real kind of nothing town. And, you know, it's like had to march out of there after missing the cut that first time. Like, ah, I'm not coming back to this place. Well, to find myself the next year, I need to go back there um, because I need to make some money and keep my job. And I uh, went back there. <laughs> so I didn't have great memories. And you just never know. And things came together. Um, uh, I didn't feel it coming. And so I think it's just, you know, in golf, you just got to keep going. You don't know when the breakthrough's coming. Um, sometimes it is when you're not playing at your absolute best. Like for me, the par fives were all marginal as far as reaching into. Um, so I just laid it up to a good yardage and just hit, I hit it in close with, you know, from 95 yards or so all week long. And, um, just got myself into contention early and held on and um, managed to finish it off and one by two. But, um, you know, I had been in, you know, unfortunately I won at kind of every level growing up. So I had experience winning and, you know, sure it's different when you get on the PGA tour, but still, I think that I'd had that experience knowing what to do when I get in the thick of it. And, and like you said, you know, two wins, but I did have nine seconds. So, yeah, I didn't convert all of them, but, uh, you know, anyway, that's how it happened. Yeah, so, you know, I guess kind of transitioning a little bit, you talked about the Seattle weather kind of being in there. and I know from practicing, and is that helpful to practice in the rain and the cold and being kind of somewhat miserable? I mean, one of the things I liked about playing in bad weather is I figured it eliminated half the field. Because half the field already is complaining and miserable about it. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you're playing, practicing too much in that, this, you know, you're, you're not going to get a whole lot better at your short game mm -hmm. when your ball lands in a puddle, right? right. I mean, he, he, <laughs> yeah, it's, true. It, it's especially yeah. for the tour, right? Uh -huh. You got to practice on hard, firm greens, sure. things like that. So, mm -hmm. how much is, shall we say, 
How much do you think growing up in Seattle, practicing in inclement weather helped you? And do you think it hurt you at all? Yeah. So I didn't know the difference. <laughs> you know, it's I grew up here. Uh, we didn't travel, you know, to other parts of the country, you know, often I eventually did as a junior player. And, um, but, you know, I had at the age of 14, I, you know, a real, real, you know, vivid dream that I was going to pursue of playing professional golf and then winning out there. And, uh, so I knew it was going to take some effort and Hey, it's raining, you know, I, I got to work. I got to go do my thing. And so there were a lot of times I was the only one at the, at the golf course, you know, you know, it's a, one of those rainy days where no, nobody else is dumb enough to be out there, but it's like, well, I don't have an indoor facility. Those didn't exist back then. I think Leslie Holbert had one in Bellevue or something, but it was like, you go out there and you play and you practice. And so, um, and I think that, so helping or hurting, um, in my situation, it, I think it helped. It helped. I think that, uh, you know, having indoor type conditions, I lived 12 years in Arizona and, um, sure we get some wind down there, but I don't know how, how much better prepared you are and kind of hitting off beautiful turf all the time and, and in great weather. So if somebody wants to play competitive golf, uh, you're going to have to play on some crappy days. So it doesn't hurt to know how to keep stuff dry. Um, you know, how to swing with other layers on and, and things like that. But, um, I still played my best on tour in places that were warm. So, um, I think that's more just my anatomy. I'm not the most flexible guy. I never have been, even if I'm working on it. So I tended to perform better in better conditions, but, but no, I mean, Nicholas came from Columbus, Ohio, and you know, there's plenty of good players that came from up North. And then, and then also you mentioned, it's like, you don't need to play and practice every single day, all day long. Right. So it it's certainly if you can stay focused and be productive. Yeah. The more often you do it, the more time you put in the better, but you know, a little off season or an off day is just fine. So speaking of bad weather and those looking through, you didn't play in the British open or the open. How come? Yeah. Okay. So never was exempt. So that was one reason, uh, that was before, you know, I'm dating myself before there were world ranking points and things like that. So the way to get in was being the top 20 on the PGA tour money list. Okay. Uh, twice I finished in the top 30, but that didn't get me in. So every single year I would need to, and they had no stateside U S qualifiers for the British open. And so it would require flying over and playing a qualifier over there. Three times I entered to do that, um, obviously, and, and I never went. Because all three years, here it is, end of June, and they were. it just happened to be years I hadn't locked up my plane status here in the U.S. And British, money, British Open money back then was not official on the PGA Tour money list. So been a lot of changes and now well they have qualifiers here a player doesn't have to go over there to the pga tour player doesn't have to go over to try to qualify but it is a regret i wish i had so you know you bring it it's like yeah that's one of my regrets is that i didn't i did go over and play in a senior british open you know at you know great one of the courses in the rotation so i kind of got a taste of the experience but yeah back when i was younger it would have been a good idea to go so 
kind of talking about the remind me of the less glamorous side of playing professional golf. So you're just getting started. You're trying to make it. Obviously, the money back in those days wasn't quite as good. Mm-hmm. You know, you're flying coach. You you booking the flight. Do you have a you know a, a, an agent? Do you have somebody who's booking, taking care of stuff for you, trying to get you into stuff? Is that all you trying to do it? Are you you know how are you traveling? Where are you staying? I'm sure they mm-hmm. still took care of you somewhat. Yeah, yeah. So the each individual tournament will um, set up you know accommodations meaning they'll you'll get back then it, it, it might have been you know something that gets sent to you in the mail you know that but here's here's a list of hotel options you know at different price points and here's what's going on and they might have use of car or courtesy car or it might be hey we've negotiated a rate with budget you know here's the here's how you do that um, and then, and then air travel. Um, the tournaments didn't get involved in that. So either you could have somebody that you've hired, whether it be an agent or someone to handle that for you. I, I was organized enough. I like to have do it myself. You know, I had some downtime, you know, in the hotel room on the road. I, it's really easy to just take care of that myself. Uh, PGA Tour eventually um, formed their own travel agency and had a representative out on site during the week to help with travel, you know, booking and changing flights. So really simple. Um, there are some guys out there that need the help, you know, just aren't the most organized or right. just don't want to deal with it. And so, um, there are, you know, I was a sports agent for a while and we handled that stuff for players if they wanted. Um, so it, it can be done in a number of different ways, but it's, um, it's all at your own expense. You know, some people think that the tournament, takes care of your hotel and whatever. There are a few events now and that special events where um, that, that might happen, but it's for the big guys, you know, basically the elite players. But um, so you've got a lot of overhead. So when you have that overhead and you miss the cut, you lost back in the day, that was a $3,000 loss probably for the week. You start mount putting those together when you're not playing for the money you're playing today. I mean, there's an awful lot of guys uh, back when I played that, had PGA Tour cards, played full time, and lost money. You know, and so um, there's there's a little bit of financial stress there. And then you're trying to keep your job every year. So nowadays, you know, the big name players, of course, have huge endorsement contracts and and everything else. But uh, there's still guys. You know, the equivalent now would be Web.com Tour. Most of the guys out there are losing money, and mm-hmm. some are making it. But it's the pathway to. The Promised Land, which is PGA Tour and $7 million purses. So I remember the first time I ever saw you play was at Bellingham Country Club. You did a little outing, if you will. How many of those outings, I think you cut us a great deal um, because you were close and you just drive up. We didn't have to pay any expenses and whatever. You just charge a nominal mm-hmm. fee to spend the day with the members and play around with a couple of guys and uh, kind of do that. How many of those would you do? And how many of the, you know, I think, you know, our listeners would be interested mm-hmm. to kind of hear how many of those are these guys doing outside of just what's on TV? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the money's quite a, quite a bit bigger now. You can make enough to cover expenses, right. things like that. Right. Yeah. So those were drying up, uh, when I left the sports agent business, there just there used to be quite a few opportunities for 
pretty much any guy that was on tour, um, there'd be an opportunity to do 15 of those a year if they wanted, and they might make 1500 to 3000 bucks to do one of those back in the day. And, uh, but it's usually on a Monday after just finishing and a lot of times you're traveling to a separate city. So you've got additional travel and some guys just felt that, you know, even though, Hey, that's a nice chunk of money. Um, they'd be time would be better spent resting and then preparing for the next tournament. Um, I would typically do it on my way in to a two or three week stretch or my way out. Um, I didn't like doing a whole lot of it in between, but, um, you know, nowadays, um, because guys are making so much money, it's really costs a lot of money to talk, convince a guy to do, go to that effort. So, um, there's fewer of those opportunities. The guys don't need to do them. Uh, the guys that are staying really busy is a typical contract for a player with a, a corporation is that included in that would be service days. So it might be, you know, if you're Rory McElroy and you have a, contract you, you're sponsored by so-and-so they you might have four days where you're going to spend time with their clients or whatever else throughout the year and you it's you're not being paid separately it's part of your whatever three million dollar deal or something right. but yeah so there's more of that and less of the one-off stuff so let's transition a little mm -hmm. bit and talk a little bit about this place and mm -hmm. talk about the rick fair academy and How'd you end up here and what are your mm -hmm. goals kind of with this facility? Yeah. So, uh, I was here, um, uh, doing a little bit of instruction when I was working somewhere else and this was kind of spent some time here. Um, the, how it happened is basically there was this change and going on and, and Willow's run contracts out the instruction. And so I was fortunate enough to be, be the guy that they brought in to to basically put together the, the instruction programming out here and teach out here. Uh, so I do an off myself personally. I'll do some group stuff, do an awful lot of private coaching, and and then um, we're getting ready to launch, um, bringing on someone you know, Keith. Keith Larson's coming in May 1st, and um, combined with him and then Pam who works here, there's just a lot of programming that's everything from beginner, beginner adults and women only classes, junior camps. We're going to launch Operation 36, which is a great player development program for kids where, uh, the goal is to shoot 36 from, for nine holes. Oh, okay. And they start off at 25 yards away and then we just keep moving back and they earn badges and there's a social media aspect. It's a really cool program that's being run so you nationally. want uh you want them to get used to scoring kind of low if you will mm -hmm. and then just yeah yeah learning it. learning how to play um yep. so um it's kind of from the hole out um our classes you know they they're gonna have academy classes but so so instruction and that'll cover everything they're gonna be hitting drivers and right. irons and the whole thing but but there'll be these matches so um every few weeks um we'll get out on the course and they'll play from the distance that they're at that right. level uh -huh. and if they score 36 or better you know they're going to move on Ooh. to the next level okay. and so uh, it's a great way and it's real popular with women as well yep. um and so we're going to have that opportunity for them as well so just to you know don't want to take all the time to mention all the programs but those are all kicking off here this next month and um absolutely something for everyone i'm going to spend my time offering some performance coaching 
for the aspiring juniors and those okay. that, that have the big dreams, you know, maybe right. to uh, play, play some college golf or beyond and, um, you know, so, share some of my experiences. Yeah. That. So obviously you're going to attract the, you know, the, the people that want lessons from a PGA tour player, something like that. But what, what about, what about your, uh, instruction or teaching philosophy do you think is different than what's out there now? What, let's say I'm a reasonable golfer, but I've got some, I got some pretty good uh, desire, a strong desire to be better. Mm -hmm. Why am I going to come see you? What is it you're going to do? What's going to be kind of your differentiator as a, as a teacher mm -hmm. and a coach? Yeah. So I'll let the market decide how I'm doing it, what I'm trying to do, but what I'm trying to do is offer the best of everything. So there's, um, you know, as far as obviously ball striking and golf swings, a huge, huge part of it. To be honest, the drive for show putt for dough thing is a little bit uh, overhyped. I mean, actually, uh, at least at the elite level, um, strokes gained approach. So that's everything going into the green from outside 100 yards. And this is that's coming. The this this is, is coming from a guy who yeah. led the PGA Tour in putting. Right. Too, by the way. Right. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah. And 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 we've come to find out that that. Again, that's at the elite level that leading and putting doesn't have the same significance as leading in approach shots because uh, the differential between the average professional golfer and the best in putting doesn't make up that much as far as a stroke average. But definitely there's guys that hit the ball better than others. And so, and again, that's not, that might be, 2% of my market, right? Of people I teach. So I, I teach people that are beginning. I teach people that, uh, you know, have been playing a long time, but have never really developed and performed well. And, uh, we do a, a evaluation. Okay. Where are we going to have the greatest gains here? Right. If somebody says, I just want to improve my swing. Hey, I work for you. We'll do that. But somebody wants to start shooting lower scores consistently. It's going to be everything from, you know, what shots do you choose to play? You know, what, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so short game, the whole thing. But um, I'm a, I love learning and I'm a continual learner. I'm three times in the last four months, I've gotten on a plane to fly down to a one day workshop or seminar, you know, the new stuff and kind of the people that have maybe done some more research and found some more, you know, whether it's Scott Fawcett and decade course management or, Trackman, Maestro Joe Mayo, and Dana Dahlquist, and Sasha McKenzie, and all these guys. It's like, hey, those that are following guys on Twitter or whatever else, they know those names. And so it's like, hey, I want to learn from those cats, and what are they doing different? And um, so the bottom line, so you ask, you know, what do I teach? It's like very, very pragmatic. It's like, okay, I, I happen to be finding more and more that, that I believe people's movement of their body, assuming they're physically healthy. We always make sure that they are, and we check kind of what kind of range of motion they have. But a lot of people's body movements, you know, if they're not turning through the ball, often it's because of the club face position, okay, and a wrist angle, you know. And so we decide, hey, which way are we going at this, you know, the chicken or the egg? And so, um, you know, I'm not there yet. I, I think I'm real effective, very effective uh, coach. And uh, I'm just going to be better, you know, down the road. But um, 
So very, very much, you know, we got to get solid contact. We got to get, you know, for some, just the ball in the air and others that dispersion or, you know, get the ball consistently going more where we want it. But um, yeah, so it's uh, from a philosophy standpoint, I'd say that from the golf swing is that we've got to have club face intended ball flight and body movement all on the same page. And right now, it, I think so much great stuff right out there on YouTube and whatever else. And and often, you know, somebody will walk in and they know all that stuff. But we just got to kind of pull it together for them in their game. So, yeah. so you know, uh, I know as I looked out there, one of the things you reminded me of, um, uh, Pia Nelson mm-hmm. and then Mary, you know, they talked about, Kind of the five different aspects of golf, and mm-hmm. one of them being uh, social. Mm-hmm. And I know there's certain guys I played great with. There's certain people that I didn't play well or didn't mesh. Uh, I know I'm flipping back a little bit to your tour days or things like that. But are there certain one who did you most enjoy playing with out on tour? You don't have to name names of who you least mm-hmm. uh, enjoy playing with necessarily, but how did you combat that, or what would you tell you know somebody for golfing who's playing with somebody that they can't stand, mm-hmm. or you know how do you because that that happens right? right. It, it is a social game whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it is one of right. those one of those challenges that's out there. Right. Yeah. So um, as far as names, I mean, I, I had. Some of my good friends are, you know, Lauren Roberts and Jeff Sluman. And, you know, again, I, without naming a bunch of guys that, you know, they're guys you'd hang out with and go to dinner with and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there are a handful of guys that were, in my opinion, they're just jerks and everybody agreed. Now, whether I disliked playing with them, I mean, because we're all just doing our thing. But when they start getting, if they're playing games with you, yeah. okay, and I had that happen before, and I actually, you know, Joe, you know me a little bit. It's not really my style, but I got in a guy's face on the 17th green on Sunday. I mean, he just pushed me a little, and that's just not my style. And, uh, but that's rare. You know, mm-hmm. back when I started, there was a little more gamesmanship and, you know, there are a few characters out there. And I think now everybody goes about their business. And, but as far as how do you do it, right? Socially, if you're with somebody you either don't like or whatever. Um, it goes back to the importance of having kind of your process, your routine. So you can be out there not having that much fun because somebody's irritated you. But when it's time to hit the next shot or putt or whatever, you know, your happy place, you know, happy Gilmore, whatever. Right. Yeah. And Lynn and Pia, you reference them that, you know, they, they provide tools for people. You know, they refer to think box and play box. So, you know, really it's, you know, four to five or more hours if you're playing 18 holes and there's these little, you know, 25 second experiences or whatever, which is when you play the shots, you just have to control that, that 25 second window. And, um, and so hopefully, you know, and I work with people all the time that, you know, might have the physical skills, but just there's a breakdown somewhere. So we've got to figure out, okay, where is the interference, so to speak? And so anyway, it's, we really only need to be focused for about six to eight seconds. Okay, so um, sure, that's easier if you're at peace the whole time. But, um, you know, if you're going to perform well, regardless of who you're playing with 
or if you're playing in a high pressure situation. And for some people, it's the, you know, the company tournament, it's a scramble, you know, and they don't play much and they want to count a few times, you know, they're probably feeling as much stress as I would be trying to win a tournament. So it relates to everybody's deals with that. So there's a, there's a fine line between perseverance and stupidity. And I know you've mentioned this before, but you were two for 400 and everybody I know would kill for a career like that. You know, I don't know how many that I tried to look it up, but I wasn't able to find out. I don't know how many multiple tour winners there are out there. Mm -hmm. How many people have done what you've done one more than once on tour, but obviously that's a significant feat. Um, When did you kind of know you were other sports like baseball, football, they cut you. You're done. You know, there's somebody out there telling you. And golf's kind of one of those ones where there's, you know, you may not have had a great year, but you had one tournament where you almost were there or something like that. How do you, where's that line? How do you know when it's time to kind of, shall we say, call a rep or whether it's mm-hmm. time to just to persevere and, and gut through it? Obviously, age has something to do with mm-hmm. it. But, you know, what would you have done? Kind of as you look back, maybe to grind through a couple of things a little bit different than you did, yeah. or or just mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to take three months off and go do an sure. injury back. Sure. So outside of injury, right? Injury interrupts careers. You know, most guys have that happen. You know, it's rare that somebody can have an extended career in any sport, but even golf, where. There's not an injury, whether it's a back issue or a wrist or shoulder or whatever, and it might sideline them for a while. Um, I think if we're talking about players that are sort of on the margin, that are trying to make it out there, that are on kind of the edge, or they haven't made it yet, um, that's a tough call. Um, because I think that that most of... of the players, male or female, that it's like they've had an experience where they either shot the round that, that you need to shoot or they had a tournament that showed they've got what it takes. Um, as far as pushing through, I'll string together. I'm just, I don't know the most cuts I ever missed in a row, okay? But there's you go through slumps. You go through, it's like you missed one cut, you miss another. I tell you what, it is not fun. It's not fun. I mean... Yeah. You may not be in a situation where you're thinking about how much money, you know, you blew through in that stretch or whatever, but just, you know, you're working hard and you're just getting no reward. And, and that's, it's a grind at that point. And you often don't get sympathy from the person sitting in an hour and a half of traffic each way, (laughs) whatever, when I'm out there spilling my guts at a beautiful course, you know, and, you know, whatever, but you know, you're pouring yourself in and you're putting yourself on the line. And, and when, a bad week turns into a bad month, turns into a bad, you know, season, that sort of thing. That's where the perseverance comes in. Um, I didn't always do it well. I think it helps me now to guide others that um, if, hey, if, if I knew back then what I know now, what would I do different? Um, so I think that when things aren't going well, it's easy to question how you do what you do. Okay, so there's this, oh, I need to change my swing. It's not working. Or is it, hey, somebody needs to guide you back to where you were. 
or figure out what's in the way. It might not be the swing. It might be something else. So um, we've seen it a lot, right? There's documented, there's stories. And of course, Tiger's all, everybody's always picked on Tiger with, you know, new instructors and swing changes and everything else, but he was dealing with injury as well. So who knows what the whole thing was about. But um, I think those that have had consistent long careers have stuck with how they do things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's not a great advertisement for to, to have people come, you know, start having me coach them. But I'm super, what it has done is, um, you know, the Hippocratical, I mean, first do no harm. Okay. Right. So that is having been, cause I got worse. I went and saw a new instructor, a golf digest, top 50 guy and super nice guy, still a friend, mm -hmm. but, um, didn't pay attention to what I, how I did it in the past. And we just kind of started over and tried to build a model swing and it wasn't me. And it's, when you get to that level, it's a little late in the game to make major changes. You just got to figure out, okay, what things, if I had just chosen to play a fade instead of a draw, it'd have been fine. But instead we overhauled the swing. So, I mean, it's just, right. So there's, um, got to be smart. You got to be smart about how you approach things. And, um, sometimes you do just need to step back and get some rest, you know, and, and uh, anyway, it's all you got to do the right evaluation, figure out what the right thing to do is. And um, but when, you know, when your livelihood is on the line and it's awfully hard to get a PGA Tour card or get access out there. So your nature is going to be to desperately hang on. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, but uh yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. We see the success stories, right? It's Masters Week. We see the guys that are at, at the peak and had a great year last year and the whole thing. And there's there's a whole lot of different stories, you know, down in Puerto Rico a couple weeks ago or at the web.com event. Now you're talking about the guys that are struggling and been fighting and either on the they've fallen backwards and they're trying to get back up or the young ones that are trying to get there for the first time. It's pretty interesting. What do you think about Tiger this yeah. week? You think yeah. he's got a shot? I do, absolutely. Uh, I think I've got a lot of company being those that that said, "Ah, he's he's not going to make his way back," and he miraculously did, and in a short period of time, right? So, um, I think it's fantastic. He's he seems to be a lot having a lot more fun. Looks like he's a little more pleasant. I mean, he's smiling. He's whatever as he's grinding away and. Um, do you like his new swing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it looks fluid. Looks, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with he doesn't have pain. You know, he has a fused disc on his back, but um, he's not anticipating pain or in fear of pain. And um, I played hurt, uh, and uh, it's very, very difficult. And then you make accommodations, your swing changes and the whole thing. So, um I kind of think that injury has probably been his biggest problem rather than any particular coach. coach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But exciting. So this, yeah, this week, what is it? Jim Nan said it's the most anticipated masters he's ever worked. And you know, that and you've got Phil and tiger that are playing great and recently won. And, you know, so the top players in the world are playing well. So we'll see how that pans out. Kind of going going back to your academy here, you know, is there, in terms of your ideal student, if you could pick somebody 
What quality would your ideal student have? Okay. So besides money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, it's fun to work with people that are passionate about playing, you know, and even if they're struggling, but they, you know, they're here because they want it bad. Okay. So uh, it's fun to work with folks like that. Um, it's easier uh, when uh, they recognize that it's going to come in small chunks. Okay. And it's fun. And, and Joe, you've taught. So, you know, you understand. I mean, you have your moments where it's the breakthrough, right? You do have those days where it's like, you know what? Today was, you're going to remember this day. You figured something out that's game changing. And usually well, you've told them yeah. 10 times before and all of a <laughs> right. sudden, for whatever reason, that day right. clicks. But, right. Yeah. So, so typically, so someone that's rec and, and then, yeah, it, it takes time, right? To, if, if there is, I'm a minimalist when it comes to change, right? I'm not, I don't suggest change just because change is change, but no, there needs to be a strong reason to go through learning a new, new movement pattern or new, whatever, new grip or whatever that, Man, and I like people that challenge me. Like they ask me why. If I can't answer that question, you got, you got no. I got no business doing what I'm doing, right? So, bring all those questions. Do your research, and because ultimately, when you go, people leave, and it's a day, the next day or next week, and you're sitting there thinking, why the heck did am I doing this? You're gonna, you're not gonna stay with it, right? So I know right. that. Um, so somebody that's in it, kind of for the long term. Not, not because I make more money, but just that um, somebody that's got a goal, okay, and I'm engaged, I'm part of their team, you know. If you're my client, you're the CEO, you're hiring me, you're, okay. it's your game, it's your mm -hmm. company, I'm working for you. Um, so anyway, and coming up with a plan, I, it's, it's nice to kind of look at it and say, hey, you're shooting, you're averaging 95 and you want to sh be shooting 85, you know, that how are we going to get there? You know, you may not like it. I say, well, you kind of play like an idiot out there, Joe. You know, I mean, it's like there's ways to, if you want to lower your score, we're going to, you know, make some different decisions. So, so that's where I bring in, you know, I'm going to use the, you know, the course management stuff uh, with Scott Fawcett Decade, which is some people have heard of that, but 500 college programs use it now. And so just, um, but there's just taking that holistic approach, um, get people shooting lower scores. But if somebody want, comes in and says, I just need to hit my driver further, well, we're going to sit here and figure out if there's there's a loss, power loss somewhere, or it might be you got to go to the gym, or it might be, hey, that's you're maxed out now, or whatever. So, um, But people that are um, committed, passionate, um, uh, I love being around people with energy and excitement. That's fun. But I get it. I've walked into lessons where I'm miserable and I'm grumpy. <laughs> and here I'm here for those people, too, because that's just part of this game. It's hard. So, you know, I know. What, what about the opposite a little bit? Mm -hmm. So not to cut out too much, but like I know back when I used to teach, I used to hate dealing with engineers. My dad was an engineer and mm -hmm. I learned an awful lot from him about being objective and, mm -hmm. and you know, in kind of getting down to the root cause of things. But on the other hand, a lot of times these they want to know everything about the swing. It's like mm -hmm. it takes one second. You can't possibly remember mm -hmm. all those things or work on all those things in that short of time anyway. Mm -hmm. Kind of let's go. So 
I always encourage people to interview or have a conversation beforehand with somebody mm-hmm. to make because it is a partnership and it right. is mm-hmm. you know, without getting too corny, you are exposing your soul when you right. come to somebody like yourself for a golf lesson. Is there anybody that you would say, okay, you know, if you got an attitude or something that wouldn't be a great fit for mm-hmm. somebody like yourself? Yeah, so I like to think of myself as adaptable, even though mm-hmm. I was sort of a creative field player. Okay, whatever okay. that means, right? I mean, and somebody that's an engineer doesn't like that sort of terminology because it's like, well, no, you're, you know, what are you feeling, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, but at the same time, you know, I've hung out with fellow players when I was just, you know, not teaching. I, I was on tour. There's players out there that Bob Estes, you know, every single detail of every little thing is thought out, rehearsed, and even done when he's playing, you know, and I wouldn't enjoy playing golf that way. You know, it's just not the way I am, but there's people that do, and I can't rewire somebody's brain. Right. So when I, I don't send them away saying, I don't teach people like you. Mm-hmm. I just learned to speak their language. So, you know, I've got track man in here. So there's all this data and we can walk through. And once, once we start showing, you know, the data and the numbers and they go, oh, you know, and so I walk them through that and then, you know, the light bulb moment happens and it happens with, with everyone. So I don't teach around TrackMan, but, um, there's been a lot of changes technology wise. There's a lot more research that's been done. And, you know, I'm all over that. That doesn't mean that my students are going to get the dump truck of technical speak. I just need to understand what's going on. I'm learning how the body moves. I'm learning that, okay, so, you know, club face at that position, this person's going to have to do X or Y to make the ball go straight. And maybe neither one's optimal, you know. So now, yeah, we might have to grind through a backswing change. Okay, because you just can't deliver it properly. But other times it's like, hey, we can deal with your funky backswing. You know, so if they want to play professional golf, we might push a little harder, right? But if it just, you know, so there's a practical side of it. But but yeah, I, I get it that there are some, right, that might be more exhausting depending on how the instructor's wired. Um, some might turn away their business. Others might just, you know, kind of fight through the process. But But I really... Rarely do I have an experience where, you know, it's not enjoyable or I feel like I can't connect. So a lot of that is just teaching a lot mm-hmm. and dealing, you know, having more and more different people come in. And um, I get it. People are fearful. People are, you know, some people are scared to death to hit a ball from me. Well, we're sitting right here, Joe. And if if someone's hitting balls there, there's nobody else seeing it but you and I. You know, and so it's like, this is the place, right? Right. And um, ultimately, you know, I can have a successful business business if I help people enjoy the game more. Okay. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, whether it's convince people to not hit from the tee box. You know, they start at 200 yards out, you know, when they're learning to play the game or start at 150 out or whatever. Just kind of let's get people going and build some confidence and some skills. But um I'd like to think that there's going to be people leaving the Fair Golf Academy, winning junior tournaments and college tournaments and going on to the tour, and then and then people that break 100 for the first time. I mean, that's, or 
you know, holding the club for the first time and being here when they actually make contact and it goes in the air. So anyway, we do it all here and it's, um, uh, I love it. So when you played golf, what did you enjoy most? I mean, what you talked about, you know, being the only one out there in the rain. <laughs> Obviously you were doing it cause it was fun to a certain extent. What was the funnest part or what did you enjoy most about golf? I would say playing well, um, and you know, obviously that translates into competitive golf, but, but, you know, hitting quality, you know, really good shots, scoring well and that sort of thing and getting better. I think, um, improving is fun. Okay. It could be somebody that it's fitness, right? Their fitness is their thing, you know, and they've made progress from, you know, being out of shape to being in good shape or a golfer going to hopping it and chunking it to hitting more solid shots than not um, to shooting lower scores. So for me, it was that getting better. And a lot of it was driven by a goal, right? I wanted to go out there and compete among the best. And, you know, when you're 14 and, you know, when I was 14, I think I was start, you know, shooting in the 70s and, you know, low 70s. I did break 70 when I was 14. But, um, but there was, it's like there's that next level. And so I was driven by that. But I know that that's not the bulk of people. People have professional lives, they have families and whatever else. But I was in a phase where, yeah, I was a student, you know, going to school. But my uh, my free time was all spent honing my golf skills. So for me, it was that. And then um, and then you have the moments, right? Everybody marks a career by moments, you know, two wins, two out of 400 tournaments, you know, whatever. Well man, you know, you're going to have to have some stuff along the way that keeps you going. Because for me, it was eight years in between wins, right? That's a long time, right? And and I, I get it. Some people never won and whatever. But, um, but it was just, it was kind of personal growth, improvement, that sort of thing that was kind of the reason or the motivator. And I, I like the individual aspect of golf. I played other sports, but that was, that was fun. So you mentioned eight years between wins. What what advice would you give to our listeners, to everybody about that dry spell, if you will? Mm-hmm. Is it is it going out there making a change? Is it you know the the definition of insanity, right? Mm-hmm. Doing, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting yeah. different results. Mm-hmm. Would it be changing that? Would it be just working harder what kept you going in that eight years that worked for you and would you recommend that to somebody else or what mm-hmm. else would you recommend yeah i think so so number one uh, i was able to keep going financially because when i wasn't winning i was still making money okay um so it wasn't that I'm not going to be satisfied with my career if I never win again. I'll be honest. I, there were weeks I played exceptionally well and finished third or something, right? Because just two guys went nuts. And mm-hmm. then, and then um, you know, another week um, where I didn't feel like I played all that well and I finished fifth or something like that. So there's, you know, there's that current sort of thing. But um, the wins, I mean... When we see the top players in the world interview, these are guys that are in contention at an alarming rate. I mean, it's just like, I think Tiger at his best was winning 35% of his starts. And, 
Justin Thomas was on a roll like that. And it's like, it's mind blowing. I mean, even a guy like Vijay Singh back when I was playing, he, a bad week for him was ninth. And that's a great week for most guys on tour, right? So there are those that are elite. So everybody, um, you know, I recognize that I wasn't Nick Price or Greg Norman, you know? So for me, um, you know, what do I consider success? Right. And so, um, you know, you have to have at least wins can't be the measuring stick. Right. So if you're making a living, um, enjoy what you're doing and all that stuff, you can't loaf through that. That'll catch up with you. You got to keep going. And the end of my career, um, you know, I spent a lot more time with, you know, growing family, you know, one, two, then three kids. And they traveled with me to them staying at home. And I'm in a hotel room by myself as opposed to them coming along. And, you know, that changes the dynamic, you know, and I sort of, um, I sort of lost my drive a little bit being on the road without my family a lot. So, you know, guys, you'll see guys, when they go through these stages in life, you'll see, um, you know, when they find out they're having a kid, they usually step it up a little bit, feeling some responsibility. Then when the kids go into school and they're wrestling with, you know, the family not being there, you might see a dip, you know, and whatever. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. I'm not smart enough to run that. And, but, but anyway, but I just, um, you know, so, Hey, it was a career. I was making some pretty good money, you know, and, um, back when I played most guys, when they were done, they didn't retire. They didn't have enough money. So they moved on to something else. So when you mentioned a little bit of the, hey, how long do you keep pursuing something? You know, the insanity thing, because I never had to go through that, but a lot of my friends did. And, you know, when do you call it quits, right? You're one week away or you're whatever from making it. And your dream that you've had for years and years and years, you know, to step away from it's tough. Um, And I think the easiest way to get out is when you have something to step into is, and that's where most of us don't don't do that very well where you're kind of transitioning into something you know try something out get to know some people and network and so um it's tough when a guy calls it quits and he's got nothing he sits there and no experience no nothing and so a lot of those stories you know that aren't told what are you most proud of your career what are you what do you want as you look back on this academy too? What do you what do you want this academy to stand for? Yeah, so I'm I'm a year into it. Okay, okay. so I started about this time last year. That uh, ultimately, I think the measure is people playing better golf. Okay, I mean that's that's ultimately it. And um, sure, I've you know, I've got some tools around here. We got some technology and whatever else, but. Um, the fact I recognize that having played on the PGA tour for 17 years doesn't make me a good golf, golf instructor. You know, I've now got a lot of experience teaching, coaching. Um, I'm learning all the time. You know, I went through the PGA of America program. You know, a lot of guys don't go to the trouble, went through that whole thing. So I'm fully in. I've been, you know, engaged in this now for quite a while. And um, so I clarified the academy here has been you know, open for a year, but I've been teaching for quite a while now. And just, um, we get better as we do it. You know, the instructors, the top instructors in the world, and I've heard them at seminars say they feel like they need to track down their first 500 clients and give them their money back because they didn't know what they were doing then. 
you know? So like anything, right? You get better, you get better, you got to dive in, you're going to make mistakes and move on. But ultimately, um, you know, when I hear stories now, so my playing days, my, my fun stuff is over. I might kick it around once in a while, but, but when I hear back from people that it's like, I'm playing the best golf of my life, right? shot this score for the first time or you know a high school kid just you know one of the girls i'm working with is just, you know broke 43 times in a row in matches and it's the first time she's done you know just those kind of things right it's like that's why i'm doing it that's why they're spending the money and working hard and and all of that because a lot of people want to learn to play this game and they want to play it better and um so that's what i'm proud of now and ultimately you know down the road that's going to be it is this you know other people's success um, yeah. So just kind of before we wrap this up here, golf's made a decline a little bit. Uh, a, why do you think that is? And B, you know, what, what do you think golf as an industry needs to do to attract the next generation of, of golfers? And, and, you know, Tiger coming back obviously is a, is a great thing. Uh, you know, I talked a lot about years ago the – Losing all the caddies uh-huh. on the golf course, you know that was a yeah. that was the reason we we lost some people kind of to the industry. But what do you think golf has to do to to win to get players out more? Yeah. So a couple couple of responses. One is I think that the demand has shifted a little bit, meaning um, like the golf, right? The the types or the forms of being involved in golf some are more popular than others now. So, um, you know, I'm not, I don't know everything about millennials and everything else, but you know, I just know that that experience, people are short on time. Okay. Even if they have resources and, um, they might choose that, Hey, I want to go hang with my buddies. I want to eat and drink and let's hit a few balls and have some fun. Okay. So how do you, how do you create that experience and top golf for those who have heard of it? It's, phenomenal right and i don't know what per head with how much money they make on person spends a few hours there but you know it's but you know there's good food there's all that stuff and and it's fun and and really someone that hasn't even played before can can enjoy the experience golf is not quickly mastered okay so i'd say that's one of the biggest challenges is how do we get people to when you talk about traditional golf which is like playing 18 holes or whatever else um it's no fun to go out there and top it and hit it sideways into the woods and you know all that stuff i mean if if that's my experience i'm going to find something else to do unless i there's hope that i'm going to get better and enjoy it more so some of that's instruction right having programs to get people going um and then, and then the other is uh, shorter time commitments, okay, than five hours. So um, depending on facilities, some are able to do that better than others. Uh, so, uh, but I think that there are people I think are busier than they used to be, okay? And then ultimately, it still hasn't changed. There's a cost involved, okay? And most golf facilities aren't making a ton of money, even at what they charge. Okay, so that one's kind of a bigger, you know, I'll let others figure out the answer to that. But that it's just, you know, expensive and time consuming. 
but it's a lot of fun. So um, I don't think people are playing as many rounds of golf. You know, yeah, they might definitely. keep playing, right? They yeah. didn't quit, but they're not playing 40 times a year. They're playing 20 or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, the answer, so there's the challenges are out there. And then certainly around here, we all know real estate's a little pricey, right? So, I mean, if there are courses that are closing that, you know, just you look at it and whoever owns that property, you know, can do better doing something other than golf, right? So, you know, there's going to, anyway, so it's, it'll all find its way out. But as far as growing the game, right, we introduce people to it. First Tee does a wonderful job. Um, but ultimately, where do these people go to play? Right, so we can get people excited and they're, they're at the driving range and whatever. But then, you know, ultimately, I think it ought to be out there on grass and nine or 18 holes and doing that thing that you and I grew up doing. But it's, uh, it's a little tough. It's a little tough to do that. One last question. Best tip for playing faster. <laughs> like I always, I'm a big believer. Hit it, find it, right, go. Mm-hmm. You know, especially mm-hmm. two people can hit at the same time if they're opposite sides of the fairway. Whatever. Mm-hmm. There's too much waiting around. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. What's so your opinion. So and if if you want to take a little more time than Joe Seavers, you know, <laughs> you know, get started sooner. I mean, and yeah, Joe's over doing his thing over on the other side. You can be thinking about what you're doing next and you can be ready to pull the trigger once Joe's put it in the air. And so I just think there's an awful lot of that where, um, and then I'll be honest, most people overthink it. Right. And, you know, uh, checklist of five things they need to do to to make contact and you know, when you're in the conscious competent stage or you're a beginner i get it that you know it's like wow you know you got a few things you're thinking of but but once somebody learns to play a little bit i'd say you know your first instinct is pretty darn good okay now in competitive golf right if you're out there playing for a living i i don't think you ought to be forced to hit a shot mindlessly because there's a 13 second shot clock or whatever but but certainly um, the average player doesn't need to be taken a ton of time. And I teach when it comes to putting, you know, I, I do encourage people to take a look at when they're trying to figure out the break and the speed of the putt to take a look at it from a second side. But you can do that when you're walking up on the green or when the other guy's putting. So you're playing partner. So I think that's what you're getting at is like, be ready when it's your turn. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, have fun, have yeah. fun. And, uh, you know, usually uh, the longer you stand over the ball, uh, the worse you're going to hit it. And I haven't seen many great shots where somebody stood over the ball for 12 seconds. Yeah. 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 Any last thoughts? Any last things you want to mm-hmm. tell the listeners? Yeah, I think, hey, it's. I know it's a niche, right? Golf. Mm-hmm. It's been not my whole world, but a big part of it for an awful you know, an awful long time. Um, within this little niche, there's a lot of fun to be had. Um, there are really good instructors out there that can help. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't have to be every week. You know, there's, there's certainly businesses out there that encourage people to come back every week or two, you know, and it's not necessary. Um, but, 
you know, if you're going to go hit balls with an effort of improving, okay, have a game plan. And if you, if you manage to pull it off YouTube, go for it, you know, but, or come see someone like me. And so that when you put in that effort and wear and tear on your body and spend money on practice balls and whatever, that you're, you're actually making progress. And, um, you know, so that, and then, uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's, it's a fun sport to play and you don't have to be great at it. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is when you talked about growing the game, I just think a lot of people haven't had you know, the experience that hooks, you know, I think each of us got hooked at some point, right. And it happens a lot. You know, there's some drug, you know, involved, yeah. but, um, you know, a lot of people have made it their primary pastime or recreation and, and it's understandable. And um, like I said earlier, it's fun to help people enjoy that more. Well, good. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been another episode of Sound Conversations. Uh, thank Rick Fair. Thank Rick Fair Golf Academy and uh, Will's Run out here. Uh, I'd say this even if you weren't here, not to blow too much smoke up, but I've been to a couple of your seminars. I've seen that. I know how you teach. Uh, I can't highly recommend uh anyone more than you um i think you get it the fact that you've been there uh obviously says a lot you can talk to quite a few things that most other instructors can't talk to i'm excited for keith larson to come out and join you i think both you guys are going to knock it out of the park so if you're looking to get better come see rick fair thank you have a wonderful uh rest of your day I've been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter. Sound Conversations.